Hello from snowy Boulder, Colorado. Thank you for stopping by this science fiction podcast from Third Flatiron. Today we're presenting the short story, Going Viral, by Dan Cobalt. Dan grew up in St. Louis, Missouri, yay, and has lived there most of his life. He works as a genetics researcher for the Genome Institute at Washington University, one of the laboratories that took part in the Human Genome Project. So this story about a powerful virus has the ring of truth. Dan hosts a weekly blog series called Science in Sci-Fi, Fact and Fantasy, and you can see more about his work on his website at dan.cobalt.com. Dan's represented by Jenny Gulliboy of Red Sofa Literary Agency. Third Flatiron is pleased to podcast work from this rising new talent, which appeared in the anthology The Time It Happened. For more from Third Flatiron, check out our website at thirdflatiron.com and subscribe to our feed. And now, here's Going Viral, read by Ryan Marshall. Our laboratory was on the verge of closing when we got the virus. It came in a sturdy styrofoam cooler. I noticed it because of the international mail coupons and the stamp from U.S. Customs. Not inspected. I didn't blame them. Most people didn't want a closer look at virus samples from the third world. To be honest, I was a bit reluctant to open the box myself. I'd just worked up the courage when Finch walked in. In the two years he'd been my mentor, he always wore the same things, shapeless khakis, an ancient button-down shirt, and convex glasses that lent him a sort of bug-eyed appearance. And the comb-over. Let's not forget that. Morning, Sam, he called. Morning, Ray, I said. Just got a new bug from Argentina. What kind, he asked. I plucked the small plastic tube from a bed of dry ice and shook it off. Adenovirus T1. Sounds promising, he said. He always said that, and he'd been wrong every time. Raymond Finch had been on the fringe of greatness for decades. I can't even remember how far down on my list he was when I sent out my postdoc applications. But I'd gone to the interview and really liked him. He was more human and less shark than most research scientists. Then again, that might be why the lab's funding had about dried up. There's a seminar in the library, Finch said. I managed not to groan. What's the topic? Cell division timing. Any interest? No, I'd better start running this one, I said. Frankly speaking, I didn't want to face the other professors and postdocs. Rumors about our lab closing were making the rounds. Even the grad students were looking at me with a mixture of pity and disdain. I'd rather spend my time with a third-world virus. That's how bad it was. Be careful. Silva's found some really odd viruses down there, Finch said. He topped off his coffee and left. It was probably for the best. Being around him made me a little angry sometimes, because of the funding stuff, even though I owed him a lot. I put the tube in the centrifuge and then pipetted a couple of microliters into a cell plate. We were screening viruses for gene therapy. The more infectious, the better, as long as I didn't accidentally stab myself with the micropipette. I didn't want to get my hopes up, but we really needed a win. Half an hour later, I checked the plate and found it empty. Shit, I said. The cells were gone, wiped out, every one of them, which had never happened before, and really shouldn't be possible. These weren't everyday cell cultures. They were fibroblast cell lines, skin cells genetically altered by a retrovirus to grow indefinitely. You could even hit them with radiation and they'd survive. We called them immortal for a reason. 
yet this new virus had killed them, in the time it took me to eat a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. I figured I must have screwed something up, so I pulled a fresh cell plate from the inventory and ran it again. This time I put a camera on it. I came back in fifteen minutes, and the plate was empty. Again. You've got to be kidding me, I said. Finch returned and refilled his mug. I swear the man had more coffee than blood in his veins. You missed a good one, he said. So did you, I said. Watch this. I pulled up the video on my laptop and hit play. There was my gloved hand pipetting the virus into the cell plate. Nothing happened for a few seconds. Then the cells nearest the entry point popped like soap bubbles. The virions were too small to see, but the effect wasn't. It was the laboratory equivalent of a bomb going off. Was that bleach? Finch asked. Not a bad question. Liquid chlorine kills almost anything. No, it's the new sample. Adenovirus T1, I said. Now that is interesting. For the first time in a long while, I had to agree. It was three days later, and I'd hardly slept. We tried T1 on every cancer cell line in the department. It wiped out glioblastoma, melanoma, and leukemia. Even the fabled HeLa cell line, the one notoriously taken from Henrietta Lacks. HeLa cells grew so fast they were like an infectious agent themselves. The new virus cut through them like a knife. Strangely, when we infected normal tissue cultures, the virus had no effect. But T1 killed any cancer cell within reach. Finch brought in a few of the other faculty members to watch. None of them had visited our lab in months. I guess the smell of failure was too strong. They were eager now, though. Finch was, too. I came in one morning and found him at the bench in his ancient lab coat, running more tests. Ray? I asked. He looked at me with red-rimmed eyes. Hey, Sam, he said. It's eight in the morning. Wow. Really? Were you here all night? I asked, though I knew the answer. He looked like hell. I think we've really got something. What's next? I asked. Animal models, and then clinical trials. We don't have the resources for either, I'm afraid. The university has deep pockets, I said. Maybe the chancellor would, but Finch was already shaking his head. The university's also very big, and the chancellor doesn't even know who I am. Where's his office? I asked. The South Building, Finch said, behind about ten secretaries who also don't know me. Yeah, but what floor? The 32nd, I believe. Formulas whirred in my head, estimating speed and the number of stops between. That gives us about 118 seconds. For what? he asked. To sell the Chancellor on funding T1. We sprang our ambush on Thursday morning. Finch practiced his pitch three times to work out the stutters. I was nervous, too, but I tried not to show it. I needed him confident. We loitered in the lobby of the South Building, trying to appear casual. At five minutes to eight, the Chancellor swept by with a couple of staffers in tow. Here we go, Finch said. Game time, I said. A small crowd formed by the elevator doors. At least one other faculty member had had the same idea. We hadn't counted on vying with someone else for the Chancellor's attention, damn it. Pitching T1 in two minutes would be hard enough as it was. The elevator dinged. I moved into position by the interloping researcher, a balding, middle-aged fellow in a stained lab coat. He had a cup of coffee in hand. No lid. Perfect. I staged a violent sneeze, knocking the man's coffee all over him. Jesus! he shouted. His eyes were murderous. 
Oh my God, I'm so sorry, I said. He stood there, fuming, dripping onto the tile floor. Meanwhile, the elevator doors opened just long enough to swallow the Chancellor, his staffers, and Finch. Come on, I'll buy you another cup, I said. I walked with him over to the coffee shop. I caught a glimpse of his ID badge. You're from radiology, I asked. Yes, he said. Randy Massett. I'm Sam Ellison, I said. I'm over in virology with Raymond Finch. He grunted. Never heard of him. I think that might change, I said. Randy was a nice guy, as it turned out. His grant renewal had just been denied by the National Institutes of Health. I felt bad for him because I'd been there. Things were tough all over. He let me buy him coffee and headed back to his lab to change. I got a cup for myself and checked my watch. Riding up and down should have taken about five minutes. Where was Finch? Another hour later, he strolled out of the elevator. He saw me and grinned. We've got our funding. I'll never forget T1's first clinical trial, a last hope sort of thing for advanced pancreatic cancer. Finch and I were worried sick. What if T1 had some side effect we hadn't foreseen? What if some of the patients died? We'd feel terrible if something happened. We're virologists. We didn't usually hold people's lives in our hands. The other treatment in the trial was called helmatinib. It had millions of dollars behind it. Bottom line, we didn't like our chances. Those two weeks waiting for the first patient follow-up were torture. Finally, Finch's office phone rang. I watched him through the glass as he answered, listened for a minute, and then hung up. I hurried around to his door. Well, I asked. I knew I sounded rude, but I couldn't help it. The Helmatinib patients aren't responding, he said. They're actually doing worse than the placebo group, some kind of toxicity. What about ours, I asked. Complete remission. What? The tumors are gone, he said. He looked like he hardly believed in himself. I shook my head. Holy shit, Ray! It only took a day for the results to leak out. I guess end-stage cancer patients and their families are a tight-knit group. A mob of them marched on the treatment ward, chanting, Give T1 to everyone! We had enough data by then, so the university gave out the rest of the trial supply of T1. Within a week, every single test patient was cancer-free. Adenovirus T1 got fast-tracked FDA approval after that. Amatinib was quietly repurposed as a pesticide. When our paper came out, Dr. Finch went from near obscurity to international fame. Calls and emails flooded in. I didn't mind. I actually enjoyed the attention, if I'm being honest. But it took a toll on Dr. Finch. I hadn't realized just how much until the morning he collapsed in the lab. Must have been all the stress. How about keeping your office for a while, I suggested. I can unplug the phone and set an autoresponder on our email accounts. Finch didn't protest, so I did both. I closed his office door and positioned myself outside. If anyone wanted to talk to us, they'd have to do so in person. I honestly didn't expect anyone would go that far. A man waited in the hallway when I got to work the next morning. He had to be private sector. Anyone wearing a suit in our poorly lit hallway stuck out like a game show host in the unemployment line. Good morning, he said. He smiled, flashing white teeth. Uh, hello, I said, distracted. I just realized I was wearing two different shoes. You must be Sam Ellison. He pressed my hand in a firm handshake. He had dark hair and a faint accent. Maybe British colonial? Yes, can I help you, I asked. Is Dr. Finch around? No, why, I asked. 
I've got a proposition for him. I don't think we're interested, I said. I got the lab's door open and flipped on the lights. He laughed and followed me in. What, you don't want to make six figures? That's not really our thing, I said. Do me a favor, look out the window. I obliged him and looked down at the parking lot next to our ramshackle building. Among the sedans and mopeds and beat-up minivans was a bright red vehicle, like a race car. Oh, I said. What is that, a Ferrari? It's a Lamborghini, he said, as if speaking to a child. Five hundred horsepower. That's the kind of lifestyle we're offering you and Dr. Finch. He wasn't at the window, so I had to ask him. Did you park in a handicapped spot? I might have. He frowned. Why? Because it's being towed. He cursed and ran out. I shook my head. If he'd wanted to impress me, he should have brought a Tesla. I had the lab to myself for half an hour before I caught the first whiff of perfume. It was faint but alluring, scented like rose petals and morning dew. I looked up from the microscope and saw a girl in the doorway. Black skirt, white blouse, blonde hair, and gorgeous. I felt my mouth drop open, but I couldn't close it. She wore a lab coat, too, though I doubted it belonged to her. Hello, Sam, she said. Her voice was soft but sultry. It made my spine tingle. Hello, I said. I'm, I'm Sam. The distant part of my brain was aware that she knew that already, but her looks and voice and perfume had made everything cloudy. Sam Ellison, she said. She smiled a little, bit her lip. Discoverer of adenovirus T1? Co-discoverer would be more accurate. That's right, I said. I'm Shannon, she said. I stood, uncomfortably aware of my shaggy appearance. Nice to meet you, I said. I would love to hear about it sometime, she said. Well, I would love to tell it. She glided closer to me. How about lunch? Sure! I sounded like a little kid being asked to go to the zoo. Maybe I could say hello to Dr. Finch. She reached for his door, and it broke the spell. No! I shouted. I mean, Dr. Finch isn't taking visitors right now. She pouted. Even for a few minutes? I almost said yes. I really wanted to, but I couldn't let the floodgates open. I'm sorry, I said. She made a disgusted sound in her throat and stormed out, tossing the lab coat to the floor as she left. Are we still on for lunch? I called. No answer. I sighed. Guess I'm back to peanut butter and jelly. I finally had a quiet afternoon and tried to catch up on email. Messages were flooding in from all over the globe. Congratulations for the most part. Invitations to collaborate, even a few more personal and risque offers. Of course, I was looking at one of these when the cowboy showed up. Reckon you're that Ellison fella, he said. His voice startled me. He wore a light linen suit, dark tie, and a tan Stetson hat. He strolled in without waiting to be invited. I really had to start locking the lab door. Sam Ellison, yes, I said. Name's Ralph Monroe, he said. Pork Farmers Alliance. You mean like pigs, I asked? That's right, but call them hogs for the most part. Okay, I said. How can I help you? It's a fine thing you've done with that adenovirus, he said. He drawled out every syllable in the word. Adenovirus. Uh, thanks. Have you thought about a delivery vehicle? I... It took me a moment to realize he'd really asked about that. Yeah, we've been kicking around some ideas. 
T1 was so infectious, we had a lot of options for giving it to patients. An oral vaccine was the leading contender. Mind if I float one your way? Sure. Bacon. I stared at him for a moment. I'm sorry, did you say bacon? People love bacon, he said. Well, yeah, but I'm not sure that it's the healthiest. Listen, son, he said. He stepped close enough to put a meaty hand on my shoulder. Got to be honest with you. The pork industry's hurting right now. Cost of feed keeps going up, and this turkey bacon is killing us. I kind of like turkey bacon, I said. It's unnatural, he said. Tastes like cardboard, if you ask me. Well, we're still looking at a lot of options, I said. Mind if I have a word with Dr. Finch? He's not in today, I lied. He looked at me, working the toothpick in his mouth. I felt like he knew I wasn't being honest. All right, son. Here's my card. He handed it to me and sauntered out. I heard scuffling noises in the hallway, grunting curses. Six seconds later, another cowboy sauntered in, a different guy in a dark Stetson. No toothpick. His powder blue linen suit looked a little disheveled. Hey there, he said. Hello, I said. He grinned like nothing was wrong and came over to shake my hand. Billy McIntyre, Turkey Farmers of America. The parade continued for weeks. Politicians and palm pressers showed up. They wanted the strain named after them. Oh, the promises they made. Grant funding, tax exemptions, buildings with our names on them. I nearly caved a few times, but I let no one through. Finch's door remained closed with only a faint hum coming from behind it. Meanwhile, adenovirus T1 took the medical community by storm. Cancer patients were going into remission all over the world. We knew that tumors evolved, especially in the face of treatment, but none withstood T1. It evolved faster. We had no idea how it killed only cancerous cells without harming the patient. That would be the subject of study for decades to come. But it worked, and it worked so well that every pharmaceutical company agreed to a non-exclusive license. This was the end of cancer therapy. They couldn't afford to miss out. With so large a supply, anyone who needed T1 could get it. It was only a matter of time until the letter came from Stockholm. Finch was up for the Nobel Prize. I thought his chances were good, though the final decision wouldn't be made until October. I kept everyone at bay while the weeks passed. I answered his emails and took his messages, handled the paperwork for the lab. Dr. Finch is too busy, I said to those who called. The Chancellor had insisted we plug our phones back in. I'm happy to pass along your message to him. I let no calls through. I blocked every visitor. The waiting for good news seemed never to end. The first of October, a messenger knocked on the lab door. He was a young guy, clean-shaven and looking bored. Raymond Finch? he asked. This is his lab, I answered. I've got a letter for him, certified mail. My heart rate quickened. Is it from Sweden? I asked. He glanced at it and furrowed his brow. How'd you know? I'll sign for it, I said. I took the letter and sent him away, then closed the door to the hallway. Locked it, too. I'd learned my lesson. I ripped open the letter and skimmed it, hardly breathing. Yes! I shouted. I ran in to see Finch. His dusty office was still and quiet, but for the whir of the minus eighty degree freezer, I switched it off and lifted the lid. Good news, Ray, I said. We did it! For a moment it seemed that he smiled but I knew it was my imagination. Those blue lips hadn't moved for months. 
After he'd collapsed, I felt his pulse weaken and then fade. Heart attack. Nothing I could do. But you had to be alive to win the Nobel Prize, and I didn't want to win it without him. Once he was nice and thawed out, I picked up the phone and called 911. Thanks for listening to this podcast from thirdflatiron.com. Original music by Disco Volante. Sound production was by Andrew Cairns.